Well, we know that God saves us for good works, not by our good works. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10 reads, We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is not of ourselves, but it is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we are not saved by our good works. But verse 10 continues, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are saved not by our good works, but for good works, which God wants us to walk in or to practice. Now really all other religions, all other systems of belief uh, in this world demands of the worshiper to act in a prescribed way to, to appease really their God through bringing offerings and sacrifices, uh, to please their gods and hopefully win their favor, um, never knowing if they've actually done enough to be acceptable, uh, never knowing if, they, if they're good, their, their good deeds are of sufficient quality. And this works-based religion really uh, is a terrible form of slavery. Uh, it is feeble, it is futile, and it is foolish. But, but not so with the Christian faith. Christianity is the only system of belief in the world where God, the one true God, the only God, because that's what the Bible testifies, that God is God and there is no other, that besides Him there is no other God, Isaiah 45, 5, that this one true God acted preemptively and proactively in love to save helpless and hopeless people who will never be able to be acceptable to Him unless He redeems them, He forgives them, He justifies them, He sanctifies them, He makes them acceptable, He makes them holy, He makes them his own. He enables them to believe, to worship, to fellowship, and to obey Him. And He does so not based on what man bring or offer or sacrifice, but on the basis of faith, on the basis of believing, on the basis of trusting in what He has done. Trusting His work of salvation through His Savior, Jesus Christ, and that alone. And that is good news. That is good news. And for those who do trust in His salvation, they are eager for good works. Out of love and out of gratitude for being accepted, for being saved by His grace. Not in order to be accepted or in order to be saved. Now, we have been going through, really, the season of thanksgiving towards God for His grace to us as a church in these past nine years. And we have been looking at, to, out of thanksgiving, that we should build a godly church. And a godly church is a church that is built by Jesus Himself through the means of His gospel, through the means of His Spirit, through the means of His people. Uh, and uh, a godly people are godly because they have a deep devotion for the Lord their God. 
and deep dedication to please Him, producing in them a godly character and godly works by them. And so we've been studying Titus and saw that to build a godly church, we first of all need to promote godliness. That is, we need to have godliness as our goal. We need to have guides, godly guides to guide us in godliness to godliness, and we need to resist the influences of the ungodly. Last week we saw that we should pursue godliness, and that happens through the teaching that is fitting for sound doctrine, and that the older and the younger men and women must pursue these qualities and practices that makes for godliness. And now this morning we'll come to the third one, and that is that we actually need to practice godliness. That is, walk in godliness, exercise godliness. And to practice godliness, we need to be reminded of three major truths. We need to be reminded of how godliness is practiced. We need to be reminded of of how ungodly we once were. And we need to be reminded of, of how gracious the Lord is. And later on, when we come to the Lord's table, this is in fact a reminder to us of who we once were and what God has done to save us, so that our hearts would be refreshed, rejuvenated, even reignited to be devoted to Him and dedicated to His will, really, to grow in godliness. And so let us read Titus chapter 3 together. Titus chapter 3 reads as follows. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work or every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first or second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. When I sent Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. 
All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to your word, and as ever, we are, Lord, in, in awe of you. We are in need of you. Lord, we pray that we thank you for the ministry of your word and the ministry of your spirit who illuminates our minds to understand it, who impresses it upon our hearts to believe it, and who exercise our will to obey it. And I pray, Lord, that we would practice godliness as prescribed to us in your word today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the first point is remember how godliness is practiced. If we want to grow in godliness, then we need to know or remember to actually practice godliness. Uh, and now, the big, a big task, or the main, one of the main tasks of a pastor is to remind God's people of what they already know. Uh, that, and urge them to, to walk in that. Urge them to, to practice it. To practice what has been preached, so to speak. And then, so in chapter 2, we saw all the instructions that Paul gave Titus to teach the church, the older and younger men and women. And now he... Uh, really summarizes the duties for Titus, um, and really the duties of, of every minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he tells them, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Remind them means they know this, they've been taught this. Subject yourself to rulers and authorities. The first thing that Paul mentions the, th the thing of first importance, so to speak. And Titus remind these Cretan believers to subject themselves to those in power and authority over them. Because the, the Cretans, as you may remember, had a reputation for insubordination. They were a contentious lot. They were a rebellious lot. They were a violently proud lot and, and an anti-authoritarian lot. Well, one Greek historian, uh, Polybius, said of the Cretans, they were constantly in involved in insurrections, murders, and internecine wars. That means destructive wars. Uh, I had to look that up. Um, but so, so destructive disputes. And so Titus of first importance remind the Cretans to be submissive, to be subject, them, to subject themselves rather, to place themselves under the authority and power of those over them, those who have been given to them to, to rule and exercise authority over them. So he's really appealing to, to have a submissive spirit, a submissive attitude. That is really the heart of godliness because it starts, first of all, with being submissive to God. And if you're submissive to God, then you are submissive to His commandments. And so... <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, remember, we, 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 we looked at, uh, in, in chapter 2, the repeated instruction to be sincere, which was to think rightly or biblically and with a focus on self-control, with a focus on to actually do what the Scriptures commands us to do, not just to please ourselves. 
And so this submissive spirit, this attitude of godliness is now expressed in how we respond to authority structures God has ordained over us. God is the first and supreme authority over us, and He has delegated authority to different structures in society. And so submission to authority is His commandment. And when we do that, it is evidence of godliness. So married women are commanded to subject themselves to their own husbands in chapter 2, verse 5. And this has to be done in the Lord and for the Lord, so that His word would not be dishonored. Wives who claim to be in submission to Christ when they are not in submission to His commandment to be submissive to their husband is dishonoring the Word of God. We're also told in chapter 2 verse 9 that slaves are commanded to subject themselves to their masters. That is what the Lord requires of us, desires of us, commands of us. Now, Christians, the Christians in Crete and in every place and in every generation ought to subject themselves to the rulers and authorities over them. So, who are the rulers and authorities here? Well, this term can be used of spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We see that in Ephesians 3.10 and 6.12. It is used of religious rulers and authorities, uh, Luke 12, 11. And it was used of civil rulers and authorities. We see that, of course, in Romans 13, verse 1 to 3, 1 Timothy 2, to, verse 2, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15. So who, had, who did Paul have in mind was making this statement? Well, many commentators immediately point to civil rulers and authorities. Uh, and I agree with them. But with a caveat, it is, it is certainly in mind that we are to subject ourselves to civil authorities and rulers. But it does not only refer to them. I believe the context, especially the immediate context, indicate that this is first and foremost applying to religious authority, church authorities. But it is not primarily that. It is first that, or well, it is primarily that, and secondarily, it's also um, to civil rules and authority. So it's not either or, but both and. We, scripture teaches both, that we need to be subject to religious authorities or church authority as well as civil authority. Uh, just in the very previous verse, chapter 2 Verse 15, uh, Titus was instructed to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. And so, because of the rebellious people, the, the false teachers, the empty talkers, the Judaizers, the liars, the evil men, the lazy gluttons who were in society and who have infiltrated the church, they needed reminding to be submissive to and obedient to church authority First and then second, but equal also to civil authority. 
So in the practice of godliness, remind them to subject themselves to the authority of Him who first brought the knowledge of the gospel to them. Who was that? That was Paul, the Apostle Paul, who received his authority from Christ himself. And now he has delegated that authority to Titus, who in turn delegated that authority to the elders of the church. And so the command is submit to them, the rulers and authorities over you. The Cretans by nature and by culture had a pervasive anti-authoritarian disposition. They had little to no respect for authority. And Paul knew that, it would, that in the church, or really, that if the church would not subject itself to its rulers and authorities, that the authority of the Word of God will be nullified. For not subjecting to the church leaders means you don't subject yourself to the Word of God because that is what Scripture teach. And it's also you won't subject yourself to the civil authorities. And that is also what Scripture teach. So, first of all, pastors and elders have delegated authority. Delegated to them by God to exercise on behalf of God for the good of the people. The same with uh, parents over the children. You have delegated authority by, by God to raise your children in His ways. Husbands over wives and, and also civil authorities over nations. So remind them to be subject of rulers and authorities over them. And, and we would be naive to think that our culture today, which is very much also anti-authoritarian, have not influenced and infiltrated the church. That means even us. And in the church, many do not and will not submit to church authorities over them unless they agree with them. But that's not submission. Paul actually explains to us what submission looks like in, in that verse. Submission to rulers and authorities is further defined as being obedient. That is, to actually do what they ask of you. Whether you agree or disagree, whether you agree or disagree with their philosophy, their approach, their practices, or their perspectives. Many think that they only have a responsibility to submit if we agree with them. If we, uh, as long as we see that it is fair in our own eyes. As long as we, we think that it's not too inconvenient for us. That's not submission. Submission requires obedience. And Hebrews 13, 17 tells, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So submit to them and obey them, trusting that the Lord has put them in place in that position, knowing that He will hold them accountable, and obey God's word on this matter. For a refusal to do that would not be helpful to you. It was not to your benefit. 1 Peter 5.5 5 tells us, And you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. 
And all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submission requires us to humble ourselves. Naturally, if there are doctrinal and moral issues at stake, then absolutely ask questions, seek explanations and clarifications, but with an attitude of humility, submissiveness, and not in pride, prideful arrogance. So, subjection to rulers and authority is first of all defined as being obedient. And secondly, to be ready for every good work. Submission is not passive. It's not just a passive resignation or a docile compliance. Submission is, is active. It's being actively engaged in the work of ministry. It is to be actively exercising your spiritual gifts, your, your talents, your minors, to proclaim the gospel and to edify the church in spite of whether you are in an agreement of how these things should be approached. Submission is not just saying, no, I, 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 I don't agree, I, I won't say anything, but I also won't do anything. That's not submission, according to this definition. Submission is further defined as not maligning anyone, not speaking against anyone, not slandering anyone. Of course, the first application here is in regards to leaders, leaders and rulers and authorities, but really it says... Of anyone. Anyone means anyone. Don't slander, don't be a blasphemer, don't be a gossip about anyone else. We have to remember that church leaders often deal with situations in the church that uh, the, the congregation in general are not aware of and should not and cannot be made aware of out of mercy, out of grace, for the sake of unity. And therefore, it's very easy to misinterpret their decisions and actions or lack of it, or seemingly lack of it, and speak out against it. Paul said that is not submission. And of course, the same is true to civil authorities. I think our hairs on the back of our head would, or neck rather, would stand on end if we knew everything that the civil authorities knows. So submission is further described as being peaceable. That is, to seek peace, to make peace, not to be contentious, not to be argumentative, not to be a fighter, not to be offensive in either speech or behavior. And really, peace flourishes when righteousness is present, when righteousness is promoted, unrighteousness is dealt with, scripturally, and avoided. And so, submissive is to really pursue righteousness, to be peaceable. Submission is to be gentle and humble, not only to rulers and authorities, but to all men. Being gentle and humble really are attributes that Jesus described Himself by. And really, gentleness is, is to not stubbornly insisting on your own rights, but acting with courtesy, with forbearance. It describes an attitude of, of being patient when wronged, of covering an offense with love, 
not to retaliate, not to attack. Trusting the Lord in the situation. And to show consideration to all men is to act in humility. It's an attitude of mind that is opposite to self-assertiveness and harshness. An attitude of considering others as more important than yourselves. Seeking not only your interests, but also the interests of others. And so of first importance, Titus remind these anti-authoritarian creatures, and by application, us to be subjected to rulers and authorities in the church. And second to that, and equal to that, is subject yourself to the civil rulers and authorities over us. Of first importance, the reason why we need to, to, to be reminded to subject ourselves to civil rulers and authorities is because God commanded it. As I said before, Romans 13, 1 to 4, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 7. But also for the progression of the gospel. That's why we submit to them. We ought not to be caught up in the cultural wars in a way that will bring the gospel in disrepute, hinder the progress of the gospel. We must not allow the church to be politicized, to be hijacked for the advancement of cultural and political agendas. When we act as the culture around us, with its anti-authoritarian, rebellious, sometimes militantly resistance, we bring the gospel in disrepute. And we open ourselves up to state-sanctioned opposition and persecution. So for the church to flourish in Crete, the church should not be militant against the authorities regarding cultural and political issues. And for the sake of the gospel, therefore, subject yourself to rulers and authorities. Obey them. Be ready for every good work in the civil sphere, don't slander, don't be contentious, be gentle and humble. And that, of course, is true in the public domain, how we interact in the public, but also in private, around the dinner table. We must be mindful what we convey through our words, even in private, in private conversations. And unlike the Cretans, we live in a democratic society which allows us to express our views and to influence others. And so we are allowed to disagree and disagree publicly. But we need to make sure that we do not do it in a way that hinder and harm the gospel. Because it is, it is really absolutely futile and folly to win the argument about a cultural, moral, or political issue, but to do it in such a way that those who disagree with us will not receive the gospel from us. Now, when civil authorities and rulers advance ungodliness, we must resist. 
not actively, not militantly, not involved in insurrection or rebellion, but passively, meaning we simply cannot comply, knowing full well that there may be consequences and that we would accept those consequences. I just read this week a little book on this issue. In, uh, the book is entitled The City of Man in the Kingdom of God by a man called Jesse Johnson, and it provides a wonderful biblical approach to this issue of when should a Christian submit to the ruling authorities when there's debate over uh, what they are decreeing, commanding. Now, when we call people to repentance and faith, we really are calling them to submit to Christ, which is a hard sell if we ourselves are not submissive to Christ, if we are not submissive to the authorities over us, whether that be at home, at work, in church, or in civil matters. And so we are reminded for us to walk in godliness, we need to be submissive. Submissive to God and submissive to His commandments, which is to be submissive to the rulers and authorities over us. Submissiveness is really, uh, godliness is really expressed through a submissive spirit. Furthermore, verse 3, we need to, to walk in godliness remember that how ungodly we once were. For we also were once foolish, disobedient, uh, foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating, how hateful and hating one another. And people, the reason unbelievers think the way they think, believe the way they believe, reason the way they reason, act the way they act, is because they are spiritually Blind. The God of this world has blinded their minds. They are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 They are alienated from God, hostile towards Him, engrossed in evil deeds. Colossians 1.21 But for the grace of God, there goes you and me. And that's that's the point here. So to practice godliness, to live godly among ungodly people, we need to remember that we were once the same. We were once equally ungodly. We were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. Foolishness means the fool says in his heart there is no God. So foolishness is living as if there is no God. That stubbornly refuse the, the revelation that God has given us through His creation. That He does not exist and we do not honor Him and we do not thank Him. It is living without spiritual understanding. Knowing of God but not honoring Him. Because our, 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 our minds are, are, are futile, our speculations are futile. They are born out of a foolishness, a darkened, ignorant, and hardened heart. As Romans 1.21 and Ephesians 4.17 tells us. And because we were once foolish, 
We were disobedient. We did not recognize God to be God. Therefore, we disobeyed Him. The word literally means for disobedience is one who is unpersuaded. Unpersuaded to yield to God. Unpersuaded for the necessity to yield to other authority. Because if I am the master of my own destiny, the captain of my own ship, the God of my own life, then really the only view that matters is my view, and perhaps those who agree with me. And so disobedience is a deliberate, culpable position that you take in. It is a willful choice to live in opposition to the Lord and His commandments. Commandments written on every man's heart through his conscience, warning him about right and wrong. And we once were disobedient, knowing God, but denying Him with our deeds. Or rather, knowing of God. We were deceived. That is, we were persuaded by error, persuaded by what is false. And we were once deceived. We were once deceived by the false philosophies of this world, persuaded really by error, by the worldly wisdom, by man-made traditions, perhaps even by false and distorted Christian doctrine. And that is where the ungodly are. And that is where we once were. And so remember, when you engage with the ungodly, remember you were once like them. Because that will give you compassion for them. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Really to be dominated, to be subjugated, ruled by our own sinful lusts and desires. To live to satisfy our sin. We were addicted to gratifying our flesh. And lo and behold, anyone who tries to oppose us, that's what James 4 tells us, the root of our conflicts, our fightings, our murders, is because we want and we cannot obtain. And so we go to war, seeking to destroy those who oppose the gratification of our desires. Remember, that is the life of the ungodly. And that was once true of you and me. And really following on from our enslavement to our own lusts and desires, growing out of that, we lived in malice and envy and hatred. We were willing to destroy others, to preserve ourselves and to promote ourselves. Malice is having this hostile disposition towards others, seeing them as a threat, as an enemy. It's an attitude of harmful intent, a mindset of seeking the demise of others so that we can flourish. Envy is basically jealousy. And we were envious, jealous 
of what others have and what we want. And then there's even a deeper sense of envy. And that is, we are envious of others for what they have, not because we want it, because we don't want them to have it. And the life of envy is never satisfied because there is always someone who has something that we want. And so we lived hateful and hating others. Being hateful is our natural outflow of envy. We despise others for what they have. Being hateful is our natural state. And when hated by others, we hate in return. People, a life without Christ is a dreadful life. And we will do well to remember that we were once like that. But God, because of His grace, because of His great love, saved us. Verse 4, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so to walk in godliness, we need to be reminded how gracious God is to us. Verse 4, really, literally, or directly translated would be, And when the kindness and the love of man from God appeared, our Savior. So Jesus is here described as God's kindness, as God's goodness, as God's love for man. And really the, the root meaning of kindness is, is the idea of being helpful, of being useful, of acting for the benefit of another. And so Jesus, the Son of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God appeared. That means He took on flesh. He lived this perfect life of submission to the Father, including death on the cross for the sins of sinners, not His own, so that they would be saved. That is kindness. That is love. And so verse 5 says, He saved us, not because of anything that we have done in righteousness. Christ saved us not because we are worthy of saving. Not because we have done anything that would make us acceptable or pleasing to Him. But because of His mercy. Because He chose to have compassion on us. He chose not to give us what we deserve. We were helpless and hopeless. And unless He had chosen to show mercy, we would have remained hopeless, helpless, condemned. As Romans 5, 6-10 to tells us. But He saved us. By His kindness, by His love, by His mercy, 
and by His Spirit, because of the work of His Spirit, we are saved. People, we, we cannot save ourselves. God needs to save us. And He does so by His Holy Spirit. His Spirit gives us new life. We are born again through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. By the washing and regeneration of and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Really, regeneration involves two things. First of all, there's a washing, there's a cleansing, there's a removal of dirt, of sin. And then there is a renewing that is making new, that is transforming us, giving us new life. And both are brought about by the Holy Spirit. And so this, this is actually, this is not talking about water baptism here. For it is the Spirit who does the washing. This is speaking of the new birth. This is speaking of being born again in the Spirit or by the Spirit. Being cleansed and renewed spiritually. This is what Ezekiel talked about in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to obey my, or rather observe my ordinances. And it was Christ who poured out the Holy Spirit on those who believe in Him as Savior. Jesus taught His disciples that He must go away. Uh, he must ascend to the Father so that the Comforter, the Helper, the, the Holy Spirit may come. You see, Jesus was limited by His incarnation so that He could not or can't be with every Christian believer. However, He is now in heaven and He sent His Spirit and now through His Spirit, He can be with each and every one of us. And of course, I believe this is a reference to Pentecost. What Christ has promised would happen, the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost on those who believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And now this happens to every believer subsequent to that event through the work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. He saved us, He regenerates us, and next, He justifies us by His grace. He declares us righteous. He imputes Christ's righteousness to us and consider us as if we had never sinned, as if we had always perfectly obeyed Him. The grace of God is truly amazing. It literally says, He justifies us in the righteousness of that one, Christ. And He does so by grace. His unmerited favor, His unearned goodness, His undeserved favor. So it is the kindness, the goodness, the love of God, the mercy of Christ our Savior, the powerful working of regeneration by the Spirit that saves us. 
So we see really there the triune God of the Bible, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who saves us. And by saving us, He makes us heir. Heirs of all that belongs to Christ. His kingdom, His glory, His rule, His reign, as Romans 8, 17 reminds us. And of course, heirs of eternal life. Because He saved us, we have hope. And that hope is not wishful thinking. It is sure, it is certain, because the God who cannot lie promised it to us. In Titus 1 verse 2. And so, in conclusion, people, for us to practice godliness, we need to be reminded of these things. We need to remind ourselves that this is why we engage in good works. For that is right and that is profitable for all men. And we have to remember to avoid those who teach and hold to contrary views on the knowledge of the truth. Those who seek to distract, to dissuade, to deceive by focusing on the worthless, the useless, futile controversies, futile gene genealogies, arguments about the law. That is not helpful or good in the practice of godliness. Avoid those who insist on these things. Reject those who would not submit themselves to the rule and authority of Christ in His Word, Christ and His leaders, whether that be church or civil. Because if they refuse to listen... They are perverted in sin and self-condemned. And so, I am reminding us at Grace Bible Fellowship this morning that we need to practice godliness by remembering that Christ desires us to have a submissive spirit and subjecting ourselves to rulers and authorities over us. By remembering that we were once ungodly, and by remembering the wonderful, marvelous grace of God to us, who saved us and regenerated us so that we would in be engaged in good works, not to be saved, but because we have been saved. And really, this, these good works flows throughout this letter. Young men would be example of good works in chapter 2, verse 7. And really all believers need to be zealous for good works in chapter 2, verse 14. Be ready for every good deed, chapter 3, verse 1. Be engaged in good deeds, chapter 3, verse 8. Learn to be engaged in good deeds, chapter 3, verse 14. But as Paul made clear here and elsewhere in the New Testament, that we are saved for good works and not by our good works. God has been gracious to us as a church these last nine years. And so let us give thanks to Him by continuing to building a godly church made up of godly people who promote 
godliness, pursue godliness, and practice godliness. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have called us, Lord, to walk in godliness, to be submissive to you and to submissive to your word. So help us to do that each day, Lord, I pray. Amen.